This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Shlomovitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. Wild Up is a new music collective based in Los Angeles. For this episode, we met with two of their performing members, pianist Richard Valetuto and guitarist Gigi Kim, to discuss the second volume of their Julius Eastman anthology on New Amsterdam Records called Joy Boy. This is the follow-up to their absolutely brilliant 2021 release called Feminine. Richard and Gigi discussed Wild Up's performance practice and their connection to Julius Eastman's work. And this release may be purchased on the link provided in the information section. I'm Richard Valetudo and I am the pianist in Wild Up and I'm currently located in Berlin, Germany. Hi, I'm Gigi. I'm a classical and electric guitarist for Wild Up and I, I live in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a, a professor of guitar at Arizona State University. Last year, uh, Wild Up released Julius Eastman Volume 1 
which was uh, a reading of his piece Feminine, uh, which occupies you know, the duration of an entire CD. Um, and on um, the weekend of, of June 17th, um, also like Juneteenth weekend, uh, Juneteenth is on a Sunday, um, we're releasing Julie Seisman Volume 2, which will feature um, two of the other pieces recorded at the same time as Feminine, which were Stay On It and Joy Boy, as well as um, two pieces that receive two readings each on the album. Um, and one is Touch Him Win, and the other is Buddha. Uh, these two albums are the first two of several, which will be released over the next few years um, as part of Wild Up's Julius Eastman anthology on New Amsterdam. The group started in 2010, um, and I actually remember um, Chris Roundtree calling me. Um, actually, no, a, a mutual friend of ours, a composer I'd met at a festival, called me shortly after I moved to L.A. and said, um, I know someone who's putting together a group, it seems really special. Uh, it seems like it will re represent a lot of the things that I know, you know, you're interested in and a lot of us are, are interested in, um, like for the music that we're making going forward, um, kind of trying to figure out new ways to, to play, um, some of the stuff that, you know, we've been trained to play or some of the stuff that we really love doing, but, um, you know, finding ways to, to work in, um, different genres, um, or at least, you know, nod to different genres. So, um, I definitely remember like from the beginning, like kind of being a part of these really scrappy, um, trying to figure it out kind of moments. Um, and I, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Chris Roundtree kind of had like a, an inheritance sum of money and just dumped it all into that initial, uh, year or so. I think the the way the way the story goes is like we had in our first year we had one shows in our second year we had five shows and then in our third year we had basically an all year residence at the Hammer Museum here in Los Angeles and um we did like 50 shows or 100 shows the the museum provided a space and we could basically use parts of the museum whenever we wanted and there was just like a lot of uh, self-creation and self-curation going on. And I, I kind of like that initial trajectory story for the ensemble because it, um, you know, the first shows were kind of like, you know, trying to trying to make a mark, trying to make an impression, um, sort of putting together programs that in some way were attempting to communicate like an identity for the group. And a lot of that still remains, like the way that we put together concerts you can see it in those early, very beginning concerts. But with the Hammer Museum, and I think this gets to like the idea of um, the ethos connecting the way the group works now to, um, especially to Julius Eastman's work and legacy. Um, it was just kind of like an open playground, and a lot of people in the group, um, you know, don't just do one thing and have a, a very kind of diverse. Um, and multi-layered creative practice. And so to within our third year, um, so this is now like 2012, 2013, to kind of have this opportunity um, to just explore and give individual members of the group opportunities to either perform and present themselves in whatever creative capacity they were working or to be a leader of the group 
you know, someone who isn't the, the artistic director or isn't the music director. Um, so that, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a brief origin story for the group, but I think that, that arrival, um, at a place where it's like kind of a lot of creative people firing from all directions, um, and, you know, inspiring each other and kind of slingshotting each other into different territories is, has kind of brought us to where we are now. Actually, Wild Up's relationship with Eastman goes way back to um, one of our first like really prominent appearances, which was on the um, Minimalist Jukebox um, series at Walt Disney Concert Hall, put on by the LA Phil. And we played Stay On It on that concert. Um, I believe that was 2012. And for us to like do this piece that has these repeating patterns, and then there's just parts where everyone's screaming. Um, like literally with their voices screaming um, on Disney Hall stage. Um, and that's kind of on the same program as like David Lang's um, Death Speaks, which is like so brooding and like beautiful piece. Um, it was like, that was just a really cool um, inclusion. And so we, we played that piece quite a lot. Um, I think we played Stay On It, you know, for the bulk of the next several years. And then, um, you know, because of some of our, interests um in the individuals in the group and like you know with Gigi's arrangement of um this you know supposed piano duet for guitar because we don't really know if it you know it's like only intended for piano duet and clearly it works really well not as a piano duet um but you know for each of us exploring this music in different ways and as it became um received more and more attention from the general public I think the idea of realizing that Eastman's music and what is required to play it, um, Wild Up has kind of always been doing that, which is, you know, like an openness um, to different practice and performance methodologies and mindsets, um, you know, a kind of necessity of improvisation or a necessity of kind of being flexible and and willing to kind of make a mess um, in the process of preparing or even performing a piece. You know, I mean, everyone always talks about how Eastman was this, he walked between genres. He was like a musical shaman, you know, like he, he literally existed in every possible stylistic circle and also um, working in dance and being a singer and doing stuff with the visual arts. And so I think because Wild Up's practice and identity has always kind of been about um, not being um, pigeonholed and kind of always always trying to find ways to expand um, the abilities of, of musicians, um, expand the way music is presented, um, whether it's theatrically or, um, you know, through various uh, media or just being inspired by things that would not necessarily fall within this like classical uh, framing. Eastman was doing that way before we were. Um, And so were a lot of people, you know, that was the, that was the zeitgeist of the downtown scene. But I think because Eastman's music 
now exists in a form that, unlike many of his composer contemporaries of that time, you don't have a lot of information to go on. And so if you're not willing to kind of take some big risks and make some really big choices about how the music will be executed, it either can't be played or it's just really dull. And so I think for us, it's a kind of a challenge to be like, not that we're improving his music, but how how can we take what little we have from someone who is clearly like really prolific and really amazing um, in all these various uh, performance, um, you know, plat- on all these various performance platforms? And what what can what can we what can we bring to it now that um, really helps his spirit kind of live on and explode off these like scant few pages? arrangement back in like 2017 I was obsessed with like Julius Eastman's music and I was like going deep dive and um, I found this piece on YouTube I remember and it's Touch and When and I was just so struck by it and I'm kind of a sucker for like field recordings and like kind of like noises and but it, it was a really great experience because like you know I was like immersed in this like this piece for like a week straight right and I started to like see things it was kind of like the beautiful mind like you're starting to like see these like clues and wonderful messages that like Julius had left for me and I felt like he was always talking about these like phrases and like the 
the, the, the relationship with intervals and different, like the speed of like the beating, the sonic beating was just so wonderful. And like how he creates this like resonance. And it's still like, I mean, I don't want to say phrases, but like sentences, right? And so when I was like performing these pe- this piece, I did it quite um, like note to note, exactly the same and no like effect. But um, I just after talking to Chris Ranchi and Lewis, an amazing engineer producer, um, they had this idea, okay, what if we did this like kind of the extreme version of it, like the extreme, let's take it to that like sonic beating that you're talking about. Let's like do in the style of doom. And I was like, yes, because they have heard me say like, I listen to a lot of doom metal. <laughs> And then, like, you know, I love my, like, very, like, heavy distortion sound. So, actually, Louis, Chris, and I, like, three of us got together in the studio, and we just experimented with all these different, like, distortion effects, and um, actually doubling it with baritone guitar, because it created more of that, like, that sub um, (laughs) resonance. It was, like, really amazing, and it was, like, this crunchy, and, like, you felt like you were going to die. And so I just like took what Julius had said, but I wanted to kind of reinterpret into this like the most extreme way. Like I wanted to kind of what I felt in that week of like arranging of like of being immersed and totally being swallowed by this resonance into, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna hone on that and let's just like let's make it more amplified.
we have these other other two pieces that um, kind of comment on a different a, a different aspect, a very important aspect of the Julius Eastman um, performance practice, if you will, which is this um, you know this idea that I've kind of been talking about a little bit all along, which is that the music is open ended and there's no one one right way to to play this music. And um, if we had more recordings of Eastman playing his own music, I th I believe that that would be like pretty clear, if not you know, very obvious. Um, and then we have these readings of this piece Buddha, which um, you know each of them presents a kind of interesting challenge uh, for the arranger or interpreter because of the fact that Touch and Win uh, is a recording that has no score. And Buddha is a score that has no recording, um, but in the case of Buddha, the score is uh, very open. Uh, it's a, it's a, almost a graphic score with some music notation and and no no instructions other than kind of what what the visual uh, presentation of the material kind of inspires from the players. So I think this record, uh, you know, in, in contrast to Feminine, which is this kind of sprawling epic statement this record has been really exciting to put together and really exciting to present now after feminine because of the way it, it's allowed the group to to access these different sides of, of eastman um, in a more kind of clear-cut way um and all of this is present in feminine by the way um you know uh, the need for improvisation, the need to make choices as a group based on, um, you know, indeterminate information or lack of information, and um, you know, a kind of uh, approach to music that takes inspiration from various contemporary music styles, but doesn't really fit within any one of them. <laughs> Joy Boy is the Julius Eastman composition that opens this record, and it's, it's generally based around uh, a really excellent arrangement that our saxophonist uh, Shelley Washington made. So it was a cool, um, you know, process for us as a group, as we often do, where you know maybe one person will do a bulk of the arranging, but then in the rehearsals it becomes kind of a collaborative arranging process. And I think that also really comes out on the record. Um, there's some really uh, extreme juxtapositions of various types of instruments playing the material, and then uh, you know it switches gears pretty heavily to, to just kind of a chaotic uh, vocal mess, um, a fun mess.